Welcome back to Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast. I'm your host, Dr. James, along with the other host, Dr. Dante. We're back together again, just riffing off each other today, man. Yeah, it's um, we had an unusually long episode last time, but I feel like that's becoming more of the norm. At some point, we kind of agreed we should probably just end it at that. <laughs> maintain, let's try to maintain that momentum and then pick it up some other time. But we had to just kind of cut it off. <laughs> yeah, because we start off as a forty-five hour, like a four, sorry, forty-five minute show, and then all of a sudden we're forty-five minutes into part one. We're like, wait, hold on, dude, we might have goofed. Wait a second. But at well, the same time, it's because the the things we're talking about have gotten broader. Like for those who have been listening for a while, if y'all remember, like what, um. Like a lot of the season one episodes, that first bit uh, back in 2018, 2019, a lot of them were relatively uh, one focus with a lot of ideas to talk about one focus. Now we're talking about much, much, much broader concepts. Like when's the last time we talked about a specific body part, man? It's been a while. Yeah, it's been since the knee episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've we've hit multiple body parts since then, but they've been in the context of a, a broader um, focus. It's as if what we're doing is vaguely holistic. Wait a second. Are you talking osteopathically again? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> In a sense of denial there. There you go. There you go. <laughs> That's all good. That's all good. And, you know, this last episode, it was serious and it was deep and it was a bit dark. So today we're going to shine some light onto the darkness and uh, bring you all out of the depths of um, despair um, or the, the pit of despair. Did I, did I tell, tell you that my kid really loves that movie right now? <laughs> I think you did. And okay. for good reason. He that still loves that movie true. right now. <laughs> he will always love that movie. Uh, it's, it's one of the best ever. You're, you're raising him right. <laughs> Appreciate it. So um, as osteopathic physicians, we look at the environment, as we've well established, in which our, our patients live and exist. And there has been an interesting trend in American medicine over the last 100 years of so, or so in an increased reliance on medications. In particular, we've seen over the last, oh, I'd say 40 or 50 years, a, a widespread uh, use of antipsychotic type or psychoactive medications to treat mental illness, and although I understand, I understand why that is to a certain extent. We're looking for answers. It belies the fact that society in the United States and perhaps the world, following our example, has sub substantively changed during that time frame. And may, maybe that change is underlying the trends that we're seeing in mental illness. Um, so and, I remember uh, when I was actually, um, when I was a third year resident, actually, there was, um, so once upon a time, the a a AOBFP, I think, had a writing competition. They wanted to talk about something primary care related. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was my first interaction with that specific uh, phenomenon. I was like, all right, let me look for something interesting, something primary care. Most folks know me as like the weightlifting doc. So I was kind of like, all right, let me do, let me do something out of left field real quick. And I looked at the mental health stuff. And, um, dude, uh, 2017, there was a 
rapidly accumulating literature on American pathologies of loneliness, of all things. And I was like, yo, what? What is this? And, uh, and, and how could that be when we're, we're all interconnected through the interwebs? Right, right. right. I mean, uh, Zoom, is, Zoom is great, right? Like, we love Zoom. It makes us happy and whole. And <laughs> right. We can uh, uh, be together without smelling each other, you know? That, you how, how can that be a bad thing, right? And in reality, that is symptomatic of truly what's going on here. Now, I'm going to refer to a couple of books. Maybe I'll, I'll add in a third book. Both of us have read one of these books. It's, it's called Lost Connections, written by Johan Hari. It's H-A-R-I. If you want to read the book, it's excellent. He's talking about... Um, personal connections that are leading to mental illness. Another book that I highly recommend is called The Power of Ritual, um, everyday, uh, Turning Everyday Activities into Soulful Practices. This is by Casper Cooley, uh, K-U-I-L-E. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's an excellent book. I can't I'll help you with that one. <laughs> yeah, not, not in my wheelhouse names, for sure. Um, the, the third one to just throw out there is called The End of Average by Todd Rose. Um, and that was more of a how to succeed in a world that values sameness, when in reality, no one is average. And I'd like to start out with that book just a little bit. We don't need to go into a, a whole lot of depth there, but the idea behind that book is if you took any person and compared them to the average uh, person, there is no person who's average. And that applies to medical treatments. When we see medications and the reports of the studies that, that evaluated them, the average, quote unquote, average person would respond in, in this way. When in reality, no one responds in the average person's way. And that gets in the way of actually taking care of patients. And that is actually the basis behind uh, lost connections from Johann Hari to a certain extent. He was, he describes himself as being depressed for many years and being prescribed many different depression medications. And he would go, he said, he would go into his psychiatrist or psychologist's office and he would talk about how great the medication was and the psychologist would listen to him and talk with him and then point out, well, Johan, you're telling me you're still depressed. How can these medications be so great if you're so depressed? And that made uh, Johan stop and, and think about that and go on a quest to find out what are the causes of depression if medications aren't necessarily the answer. So we're told, or we've been told in, in the past, the paradigm was that mental illness is caused by some kind of biochemical deficiency, right? A quote-unquote chemical imbalance. Specifically serotonin, for those who aren't familiar. The idea was right. um, if serotonin levels... The, the way we got to this conclusion is very weird. Maybe we'll save that for a, a branch off point. But basically, the idea is if serotonin is sufficient, then not depressed. However, if serotonin is low, then depressed. Um, that was after we gave up on adrenaline as the happy hormone. Once upon a time, we thought 
um, epinephrine or adrenaline, depending on how British you want to be today, was the <laughs> right, basically. For the record, yeah. for guys who don't know, epinephrine and adrenaline, same damn thing. But um, yeah. we used to think that that was the hormone that stabilized a mental function and emotional state. And turns out, ah, so much for that one. Guess it's more serotonin. And guess what? So much for that one, too. Yeah, as many of these um, antidepressants are actually serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And what that means is they block cells in the nervous system from reabsorbing serotonin. The idea is if you can keep serotonin in high enough concentrations, it'll keep you happy, which completely ignores the fact that 90% of serotonin, as we've talked about in the past, is produced by the gut, uh, among, other, among other things. But... Looking historically, humans are, as you know, a very social creature, a social animal. Before the 1950s in America, about 70% of Americans were actually farmers or agrarian in some way. And so these families would live together on the farm in multi-generational families. You had grandma and grandpa who started the farm and then mom and dad who kept the farm going. And mom and dad had five or 10, well, 10 or 12 kids to keep the farm running. Yeah, it's a lot of kids. <laughs> it's a lot of kids. It's a lot of kids, man. <laughs> my, my own uh, mother-in-law was one of 10 kids. Um, and my wife, uh, the youngest of seven. So uh, I've seen how the big families can, can really be uh, still around, not nearly in so such high concentration as what they used to be. But we had a, a number of things happen in the United States that changed all of this. Number one, we had the Industrial Revolution that brought people off of the farm and into cities to work in uh, factories in manufacturing. And then in the 1950s, well, this really started in the 1930s, families started moving out of urban centers to the suburbs. And this really hit its stride uh, in the late 40s following the end of World War II. And uh, suburbs began to grow. There were all of these uh, urban developments or suburban developments where we had neighborhoods of all the same homes built up very quickly, very cheaply. We had the GI Bill that gave very good mortgage rates for GIs that had served in the war. And so they had access to funding that they never had before. And now we, we would develop this disconnected society that led to the formation of what we now call the nuclear family. You'll hear the nuclear family described in social media as this uh, this mythical mythical not nostalgic thing that as uh, so it's always been there but in reality it's new it started in the 1950s where only mom and dad and their kids can move out to the suburbs there wasn't enough room in these homes for grandma and grandpa so we have a number of issues that developed as a result of this number one where, where was grandma and grandpa going to live well, you know, they would have to live in their own home and then eventually in a nursing home. We could probably dedicate a whole episode and a half to a tirade about that phenomenon. <laughs> yes, we could. We'll avoid that for now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It also took families away from their support groups. Um, so now you have to drive 
longer distance to work. You have to drive a half an hour or an hour, sometimes longer. I know people on the East Coast will sometimes travel two to three hours a day just to go into work because who can afford to live in New York City? So you live in Connecticut instead, or you live in New Jersey instead, and you spend all of this time uh, uh, traveling, commuting in uh, to and from work. And so now you've lost that connection to your community. And lo and behold, starting about that time, we see an increase in mental illness and especially depression becomes a thing. And it, it, you combine that with uh, the pharmaceutical corporations coming up with a solution that they needed a problem for, um, aka antidepressants. So look, we so can affect that. That Sorry. is way more right than that's supposed to be. Um, <laughs> so, so context. It's really easy to to um, look. It's a show about holistic uh, medicine. It's about osteopathic medicine. Um, none of us, neither of us here, are coy about our generally minimizing medicine bias. Right? That's part of the premise of our way of practicing. That's what we do. Uh, but that doesn't imply that medicines are necessarily the bad move. That being said, the one of the things I was doing kind of to prepare for this episode was I wanted to re I wanted to look into how the hell we got to this point to this place with SSRI treatments with um, the various medications we use for depression and anxiety and oh man I, I don't know which is the better metaphor it's the emperor has no clothes or it's like you're built upon a throne of lies <laughs> like the emperor without clothes is built on a throne or sitting on a throne of lies <laughs> there you go and and buddy the elf is right there slobbering on like you know you are not Santa. <laughs> but um, okay, so context before it gets too trash talky because that's not the point of this one. So once upon a time, we were looking into the various hormones and chemicals that can influence blood pressure. Right. In the pursuit of blood pressure uh, relative uh, relevant uh, chemicals, we found this weird thing uh, that we ended up calling 5-HTP mm -hmm. um, and teramine essentially. And then Incidentally, we found out that this thing also seems to have some sort of psychoactive property. And I say incidentally because all of the research in the time that this was actively being studied was centered around, is this thing or is this thing not a useful blood pressure uh, agent? Was it a presser, basically? A presser being a thing that increases your blood pressure. Right. And right. it turns out it's a garbage blood pressure agent, so nobody really cared. It was actually considered um, like refuse. It was something you threw out of the lab. And then some some research group, I can't remember all their names, it was really, really cool, went, there might be something to this chemical, because some other research team found out that it does weird things in the brain, but they didn't know what it does. So this other lab goes and says, hey, you know what, let's collect all of this refuse and do something with it, because it might be useful for something we didn't think it'd be useful for. So they started collecting a bunch of, like, dead horses and whatnot, I kid you not. Um, in order to filter out a bunch of proteins and supernatants and whatnot, and they end up getting like milliliters of this weird yellowish liquid that they had no idea what the hell it was supposed to do. And then they found out that it didn't really do anything. Um, yeah. Anything we could test for at the time, at least. Yeah, it's a lot of buildup for nothing, right? Yeah. But uh, what ended up happening as a parallel side of research, this is how sloppy science is, by the way, guys. If anybody thought that there's a logic to the system, there's a logic to once we find a lead, but looking for a lead is pretty blind, you know? Yeah, you're just throwing uh, paint on a wall and hoping it sticks. 
or in this case, horses into a meat processor. <laughs> Which, yeah, you hope it sticks. <laughs> I mean, hey, it's... Well, if it's not going to be glue, it's going to be meds. Basically. But what ended up happening was um, many, many parallel research threads later, we find out that this weird garbage substance that we thought was garbage was actually serotonin. And we didn't really know what to do with serotonin. But incidentally, we found out that if we accidentally raise that levels of serotonin for um, people that we know had depression, it seemed to make them a little bit better. But we didn't know the context for how or why. So all of a sudden we go, maybe this is a depression-relevant thing, and all of a sudden it became the depression med. In fairness, that's not that terrible of methodology. People got sad that you gave them some serotonin, they got relatively happy. But nobody actually tinkered out how the hell it does it. In fact, I might have spent an entire like two months trying to read up on the literature on how the hell serotonin does its job. And... um there's actually an organization that gets together every couple months or whatever to discuss the newest evidence on what the hell serotonin does. Because guess what? We still don't know. We don't know what the hell serotonin does. We found there are 17 receptors. There are 17 distinct receptors. 15 of them are what you call G-protein coupled receptors, and that might have made somebody's um, sphincters pucker. So I apologize. <laughs> but basically what it means is that they're like channeling their uh, their uh, metabolic influencers, their uh, they're modulators more than anything else, as in they right, do like right. really weird long-range signaling. And two of the receptors actually do voltage-gated stuff, as in like direct, quick, and easy things, um, one of which being how you vomit, and the other one being relevant to your stomach. Guess what? That's why we use Linzess and whatnot. But we couldn't, we can't find a clean link into mood. In fact, there have been so many attempts to find out how the hell serotonin affects mood that we accidentally found out how dopamine works. Which is dope. Yeah. <laughs> Notice, we still don't know what serotonin do. Yeah, still to this day. But but sure enough, we're going to affect its levels to see if we can't um, get positive uh, outcomes. Which, And going back to your uh, initial point here is that these medications do have positive effects on some people. Um, if for short short term response, um, the main drawback for a lot of these medications is over time you have to increase the dose, and then once you get to the maximum dose, you have to wean them off and change them to another medication because the effects are transient and and rarely permanent. Um, so it it makes for an interesting situation, and then we mix that with just. Something uh, struck my brain, like, like a bolt of lightning struck my brain. Uh, during this same time frame, we had a change in uh, societal policy towards mental illness. Up to this point in the 60s, 50s and 60s, we had state institutions for treating mental illness, which for many good reasons got a pretty bad rap because they were doing pretty crazy stuff to the mentally ill. Yeah, it was pretty bad. And because of public outcry, for a good reason, uh, CMS, the Centers for uh, Medicare, um, decided that they would no longer pay for mental illness beds in hospitals. So uh, if a hospital had more than 20 um, psych psychiatric beds, they would not qualify for CMS funding. And the, C and the hospital said, whoa, wait a second. That means we're going to shut down. 
And essentially, through that and through some legislative practices, all of these uh, psychiatric hospitals shut down across the country. And we had a deluge of mental illness cases that would normally have been taken care of in these institutions. Now, they weren't. Um, they, they would lead to people being homeless. Uh, they would also uh, inundate primary care practices, um, and we've never had enough um, mental illness uh, professionals, whether they be um, psychologists or psychiatrists or social workers, to take care of everyone. And so we had this perfect storm of all of the mental ill patients that were being released from these facilities into the general public, and we had this serotonin, the serotonin discovery, and the some might say serendipitous. I'm, I'm not. I'm not convinced of that just yet. And so we had to have something. We had to have something. And voila, we have antidepressants, tricyclics showing up on the scene along the lines of. Um, oh, gosh, I'm just dropping a dropping a blank. Um, not sure where you're going with this yet. One, so PCAs, <laughs> then what? Uh, TCAs and then SSRIs and oh, you're talking about yeah. So you have yeah. your cyclic antidepressants. You have your uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Those are yeah. that's an yeah. old one. That, that's an oldie and not a goodie. Yeah, yeah. True <laughs> story. I had a patient the a uh, couple weeks ago who was actually on an MAOI. Really? Yeah. I looked at her like, what year is it? <laughs> the fact that she can still get it is impressive. I. It's yes. Point being, she's off the damn thing. It's yeah. I was gonna say, is she making it at home? Um, <laughs> maybe we'll share that story for a different episode when we talk about how to learn how to walk again. But yeah, yeah. She's she's better now. She's she's in a much better. She's honestly in a much better place now. But man, MAOIs were taken off general use for this for a reason. Just for the record. Yeah, yeah. Just so you know, there. Are, whenever you see a drug interaction warning, it's generally the MAOIs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't take when don't take that drug when you're taking just about anything else. Right, but but all this to say that the um, the idea that we can medicate away the emotion of sadness and the emotion of depression. Notice different words, different emotions. Right. Um, right. Was nobly attempted, but very very insufficient. Because look, suffering sucks. That's the point. And if there's a med out there, if there's a pill that can alleviate suffering and that ends up being a net good, then why is that a problem? The argument we're raising here is it's not all fun and sprinkles. Uh, <laughs> yeah, once you get on the medication, getting off the medication can be every bit uh, the trial of, of, of pain and suffering as there was before you even started the medication. And, you know, the interesting thing about all of this is if you continue the stimulus that was causing the depression in the first place, the medication's not going to cover Take that. that away, right? It's not going to remove it. Well, I mean, that's the that's the Pixar argument, right? That's the yeah. that's the inside out argument. It's yeah, sadness is still there, <laughs> right? Right. Like, what's and the point of this, of this emotion? Why is sadness still here? And then, well, we talked about it the last time. I'm not going to go into the whole plot again, but the long and short of it is the whole point of. Uh, sadness, anxiety, depression as the emotion in the movie um, Inside Out, which is a really cool Pixar flick, was that 
when everything is working fine and everything is good, there's no real need to be sad. So she's kind of out of place. But when things go wrong, that's that's the one that goes active because it's the behaviors, it's the physical manifestations of sadness and depression that signal to your community that something is wrong and that you need help beyond the means of your own ability to control, right? Right. And, and it's the, the, the disconnection from our communities, that means we don't know where to get that help. Now it's starting to come full circle. Now we're, now it's coming in, now it's coming into clarity here. And what we're going to do over the next few minutes, uh, we're going to pause for a bit, and then we're going to get into um, the nine causes of depression that uh, Mr. Hari writes about, none of which are chemical imbalances, all of which are connection imbalances. We'll get to that in just a minute. Here's a fun fact. Do you know that lobsters can actually get depression? It turns out that the serotonin system is remarkably conserved across multiple species. It turns out that for almost every system that runs serotonin, it's a postural mediator. What does that mean? It means that for lobsters, at least, when serotonin is uh, sufficiently high, they crawl more upright, they, they gesture as if they're dominant, they start more fights, they challenge other lobsters, like, get off my rock. And when serotonin is low, they slouch, they slump, they kind of cowered away. If a, if a bigger lobster challenges them to a fight, they kind of surrender and back off. What's really cool is we found this out because if we give lobsters SSRIs as an antidepressant, they'll actually act as if they just want to fight and start grabbing mates, looking for rocks, and challenging other lobsters all over again. Once upon a time, we started learning about dominance hierarchies by challenging lobsters to like bum fights. Okay, so before we get into all of these connections, because it's very important for us to understand what those connections are, we do need to have an understanding of what processes underlie these connections. So we're going to get into a little more biochemistry because that's what we do. And uh, Dr. Dante, tell us, tell us about the biochemistry behind connections. And we're talking about uh, social connections. All right, guys, strap in. So this is really a part two of last episode. So if you guys haven't heard the one just before this, it's a good time to stop, go back to the last one and, and get in on it. But uh, the, the long and short of it is we have a couple systems for emotional regulation. There is a system that makes you want to approach and a system that makes you want to avoid. And then there's a system that tells you to slow the hell down and figure out what the heck is going on. A lot of our negative emotions at a technical level are generated by our slow the hell down what the hell is going on system that is formally called the behavioral inhibition system. It is generated primarily by the interactions and connections between your septo hippocampus. That's a big word. It means, mm -hmm. I guess, septal water horse. Don't worry about it. Septo hippocampus, your prefrontal cortex. That's the thinky, thinky parts that make you human good. And then there's the amygdala. There are a couple other small players, but those three sections, the septohippocampus, the prefrontal, and the uh, amygdala, are the, the stars of the show. There are other cool folks like the periaqueductal gray and all that good stuff, but this isn't exactly a med school course, so I'm going to 
skirt the anatomy just a little bit. So why does that matter? It matters because those systems, specifically the slow the hell down what's going on system, it's they're really calibrated as threat assessment systems. So when you see something that is unknown, you don't know what to think of it. And if you guys remember last time I told you, things that are unknown and ambiguous, you valence hard into the negative, as in you perceive the thing as a threat until proven otherwise. Why would we do that? Because the unknown is kind of scary. Think about the Croods, that movie from uh, DreamWorks, right? right? Go out to the unknown, you die. Yeah, evolutionary speaking, you protect yourself by avoiding the unknown because what's behind that tree? It could be a saber-toothed tiger, or it could be a 100-foot cliff, or it could be a field of daisies, and you just might not be able to see from your vantage point. So you just don't go behind that tree. Precisely. Now keep in mind, the, the way we evolved as a species is we learned how to explore into the unknown. We basically keep one foot out into the darkness and keep the rest of us on in the light. So that oh, just enough of us now, is going... Now Frozen 2 is going into going in, into the unknown is in my head. Thanks. Yeah, about that. <laughs> that was a really, really good intro into the um, adventure phase of that movie, by the way. Yeah, Forget well. about how nonsense the plot is. Having the Into the Unknown song bring in the Into the Unknown phase of the movie was... <laughs> it was a good segue. It was a very deliberate, and I could tell those guys studied their young. <laughs> they did <laughs> oh man or i guess um that, that wouldn't be young that would be more of um oh man blanking out blanking out um shit hero thousand faces uh i know I, I say this all this all the time whatever point being we end up with a system that's designed to calibrate and look for threats does that make sense yeah okay. and Let's in the absence of threats we have to be careful exactly so those threat assessing systems are environmental assessing systems. So what we do is we look to the environment to look for threats, and then we learn to navigate appropriately. I mean that in the most technical of senses. Now, that is not a uniquely human thing. That is a generically ambulatory creature thing, like our lizard brains are half of the software for this. And the mammalian system is only like the emotional valence behind it. But like, if you put, I don't know, something that's intrinsically scary to a gecko in front of the gecko, it's going to run before it cares about what it's running away from. Yeah, you, what it's going to try to protect itself and keep itself alive. Exactly. What mammals did was develop a system to negotiate uh, competing resources and competing drives. So whereas the lizard, if you give it something it likes and doesn't like, it just stalls the hell out and doesn't know what to do. Congratulations, you caught yourself an iguana. For mammals, we have a system to basically play the calculus out and figure, pick one and go. Like that whole what do you want to eat for dinner? What do you want to eat for dinner? What do you want? Oh, don't start that again. Exactly. For a lizard, they'll be stuck in that loop until they die. For a mammal, we can actually negotiate that given enough time. Does that make sense? Good. That's, that's, why, you see, that's why you see zebras at the water hole going back to the water hole, even though they know there may be a crocodile there. There you go. So why does all this matter? It turns out the human version of the threat assessment software, which is designed to calibrate for the environment, is the same uh, machinery, it's the same hardware that also recognizes our social interactions. What does that mean? That means that by real estate, the same neurons that are designed to process your relationships to other people are the same neurons that are used to process your position in space and your relation to the environment. As in, the same neuron that it encodes, I have a tree about 10 feet to my right, is the same thing that's going into, I have a friend approximately 10 miles away in a house. Same exact hardware. 
Why does this matter? The threat assessment system is not just calibrated for environmental threats, it's calibrated for social threats as well. And turns out, because we are a uh, being. social species, basically we're a bunch of chimpanzees with a hive mind overlay. Yeah, social- we're kind of a mix between chimps and bees. It's pretty dope, actually. <laughs> the um, changes to our social environment are actually registered as very physical threats. And the cool thing about that is, we have a bunch of, we talked about uh, fixed action patterns, right? We have right, habits right. and patterns that evolve to make us do a thing. For example, if want to reproduce, then have sex. If hungry, then eat. It turns out our fixed action pattern system for if the society is threatened is one of two things, depending on how much serotonin you have. Guess what? We figure that part out. Is if serotonin is relatively high, if testosterone is high, those are the two uh, caveats, then you go and fight and you defend. But if serotonin is low and testosterone is low, uh, roughly speaking, you go into this sort of uh, actually depressed behavior. Why? Because that is the signal that whatever solutions you have in your toolkit are insufficient and you need help. What does this mean? We are hardwired to act depressed when we need some goddamn help. That's not a bug. That's the actual, that's the design of the damn thing. That's the design of the system. So what what you're saying is depression is not necessarily, it's not an illness per se in that context. It's a signal that society or your your local environment needs to provide assistance. Correct. At a very formal level, it is actually the same thing in our system as pain, which is a big deal because a it's lot of a, our depressed patients hurt. pain. Yeah, they do. And uh, the the depression seems to amplify pain in the same way as, and sometimes pain amplifies depression. So they they go hand in hand. Right. They're non-differentiated hardware running two different programs. And that's a big deal. Parallel processing and it's it's amplifying both. Which is kind of cool, actually, when you really think about that. Now, keep in mind, there are versions of depression that are pathologic. Let's say, God forbid, you have a traumatic brain injury or you have a stroke and you knock out the systems that regulate this and it goes haywire. I'm probably giving you serotonin. I'm probably giving you Lexapro. Yeah, but, and that that is a very appropriate way of going about it versus your mom died and you're sad. And that grief is also appropriate. Well, you're sad for a year. Well, maybe you loved your mom that much that you're still sad a year out, and that's also okay. Right. So with all that background, now I want to kind of put the uh, put the ball back in your court. All of the connections things that uh, that Johan Hari describes, when I read them, because I read this, this is the one book we read together. Right, uh, right. The other ones, we've, we kind of diverge a lot on purpose, but we shared on this one. Um, when I was reading the John Hari book, as I'm going through those connections, I'm looking at this. With my old school, with my old school neuroscience training, going, he's literally describing different variations of threats to this, to the, uh, the human limbic system, for various reasons, and they're all legitimate threats. But he's saying the same thing nine different ways, which is why the book could have been cut in half. <laughs> it could easily be pared down. But the flip side is uh, the examples that he he shares in the book are uh, very descriptive and uh, convincing in many ways. And he also spent some time in uh, some of the basic research from the, the soft science side 
social sciences side yeah. that uh, support uh, what he's writing about. So why don't we get in, uh, into some of these causes? Because I think these are very meaningful for everyone. Uh, the first of the nine causes uh, is a disconnection from meaningful work. Now, I experienced this. I hope everyone doesn't mind me going a little personal on this. I talked about my ankle for a whole episode. <laughs> yeah. Let, let's, let's go for this. Um, I graduated from uh, college for the first time with a degree in software engineering right around uh, 2002 when we had this massive IPO crash of a bunch of tech companies. And uh, the degree I had earned in software engineering wasn't so easy to get a job with during that time. And I went unemployed for a while. So I eventually just took whatever job I could get. You know, that's just what you do because you've got a family, you got to make money. And it was a job as a used car salesman. And I, I'm not going to knock car sales because it can be a very good paying job and some people love it. I did not like that job at all. Uh, it was terrible. It was terrible. It's one of those jobs where you wake up in the morning and you have to say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, knock on people like me, kind of the, uh, the whole Martin Short kind of thing, because that was a terrible, terrible job for me. It just did not, it was not meaningful at all. I didn't feel like I was making any difference. I was just trying to convince people to spend money on a car that someone else had already owned. And I, if I didn't sell the car, I didn't make any money that month. You know, it was strictly commission only. It was a difficult job. And I felt, I felt depressed working that job. And I wasn't someone who tr clinically had been diagnosed with depression. But I began to understand what depression, depression looked like. And funny enough, at that point, my wife and I sit down and have the talk, like, you shouldn't be doing this job. Why don't you go to medical school? And, uh, you know. That was not the talk I thought you were going to say. Yeah. 18 years later, here I am, a physician. Hey, <laughs> but, now we work together. Yeah, now we work together. And now I don't know what talk you were thinking of, but it could have been you need to go to the doctor, you need to get some medications, you need to get treatment, you need to get counseling. Um, Admittedly, any, that's where I thought that was going to go, actually. Any number of those conversations are going on every day. Um, I was very fortunate that I realized that it wasn't me. It was where I was working. And as soon as I got out of that job, I felt significantly better. So think about this. Uh, going back to the end of average book, one aspect of modern society is, at least on a business standpoint, many jobs have become numbers. Many jobs have... Um, become just you become uh cogs in a wheel and it's this being a cog in a wheel that has removed personal identity from the workplace it, it, essentially you are no longer encouraged to be creative you are no longer encouraged to be yourself you are encouraged to be what the company wants you to be and that's where the, the whole idea of a manager, everyone has a manager. The manager is making sure that the employee is doing what the company wants them to be, or wants them to be doing, not encouraging them to be themselves. That would be a leader. A leader would be someone who uh, brings out the best of all their 
colleagues. I can almost but, hear be all you can be coming out from that. Like <laughs> the old 90s army recruitment. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. And, and the military doesn't really encourage creativity either. <laughs> it's ironic given the nature of that particular slogan. Yeah. Well, and and you can see how the whole nine to five idea, clock in, clock out, you become just yet another nameless, faceless number in the company ledger. And you become disconnected because the work isn't necessarily meaningful. And if it is meaningful, the company is, is going to profit off of it and maybe not give you the, uh, the accolades that you deserve for creating something meaningful to the company. Sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. But because of this dehumanization of the workforce over the last 100 years. It's uh, called Taylorism, based on the gentleman who developed the whole idea of structuring companies in this way. You leave work unfulfilled, and you come home depressed or downtrodden. And how do you fix that? That, that becomes a, a huge issue. Uh, like I had uh, mentioned with my own job, I wasn't really uh, clinically depressed. I, I wasn't organically depressed. I didn't have a serotonin uh, deficiency. I had a, a meaningful work deficiency. And it wasn't until that was addressed that I would feel better about the work I was doing. So and that's that's, a str yeah. that's an important thing because uh, look, we uh, you had the the um, the opportunity, the privilege to be able to say my environment isn't quite what I'm looking for. It's not appropriate for who I am, and thankfully you were able to make a jump. But at the same time, I'm also aware that not everybody necessarily has that play, right? Right. Not but, everyone has that opportunity. But that doesn't make it into a oh he has the chances and I don't type of deal. The reason that's important is because one of the important things to do with that depression signal is to recognize that, uh, so like what we talk about um, Inside Out, right? Uh, mm -hmm. the, the, the Pixar movie, right? Sadness, yeah. the, 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 the blue chick. Like what's, what's the point of even having her? And um, when all- Why are you even here? Right. That's, that's, like a, that's a whole plot of the movie. It's what the right. hell is sadness for? <laughs> um, we don't need sadness. Exactly. You have joy, anger- uh, Mindy Kaling and fear. So you're good. <laughs> These are the elemental emotions, clearly. Yes, right, right. But um, the idea was at the end of the movie, they realized that the whole point of sadness was to signal that you're beyond your threshold. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. I don't know who I am, so on and so forth. I need help. I need help. Um, so uh, when you're in this position, sad is different. So being just sad means that, all right, maybe you're not getting what you want, so on and so forth. But when the depression signals start to flare up, that tends to be the the mammalian signal to go, yo, tribe, get in here. I right. need some assistance. That is the, the flare to the community saying, help. 
and you make a very important point here. Anger is not the flair to the community. That's the flair to the community is like, stay away from this guy. Um, joy is not the flair to the community that you need help, that you need connection. Everyone likes joy. Joy is a happy, popular thing, but that that also doesn't necessarily provide you with the survival mode that you need. Right. And joy means times are good. And everyone likes good times. <laughs> right. But it also means you don't have to help me. Let me do my thing. Get the hell back. I'm, I'm all right. I'm all right. I also think it's important to recognize that the sadness allows you to connect to other people through their sadness to help recognize when their flares, their signal flares are up in the sky. And you can say, look, my neighbor down the street and has, has some sadness. Let's go and support him or her. Uh, and you know, so it plays an important role. Right. And then what have we done with our communities? Uh, this is something that we kind of play around with. It's with, with the way our current societal environment is set up, we have become, so the word I hear a lot is atomized. What does it mean to be atomized? It's instead of being this like really cool interwoven network of humans, social network, because that's what the word was supposed to mean. Right. You end up with like, tiny islands of individuals that kind of maybe have a connection, but for the most part you have maybe basically yourself and whoever you're willing to make a human interaction with in person emphasis on in person, because it turns out that actually makes a difference. Um, there was literature that showed that the amount, the average amount of friends, people survey a lot of cool stuff, by the way, um, well, they've got to do something to justify their education. Basically. Um, <laughs> So there was, there was a poll that came out, and I forget if it was 2016 or 2015, but it was available for a thing I did in 2017. So it had to be at least around that time. Okay. Where the, um, we, basically some organization decided to map out and report the average number of close contacts that, um, that an American has. And I forget the technical criteria for how they define a close contact, but it was like, like if we speak just human to human, it was something like a person that you know in person – who you're willing to confide in in case of hard times that you are not interested in having a sexual relationship with because so a platonic relation. Yeah. Deep, meaningful platonic relationship because intimate relationships in a, in a sexual manner actually register in a different part of our brain. Right. That's an important detail. Um, and the most common number was zero. Which is, surprising it's terrifying I, you you see how things are portrayed on television everyone's got friends and you see every, how everything's portrayed in the media oh everything's going fine but in reality america has disconnected itself from its its soul and that soul is community right. and that that brings in that second disconnection the disconnection from other people see what i did there you <laughs> segue was perfect you Thank read you. my mind. You read my mind, <laughs> and we read the same book, is what I actually. Well, this is true, <laughs> which you know, it's, it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and it doesn't help that we are physically disconnected from each other over long, long distances. Now, to those of you who have heard our podcast, we've had to switch from being in-person uh, recording to a Zencaster recording, which is a great service, but it has uh, made it more difficult for us to interact uh, on the show um, because we don't have that 
that uh, the visual cues of our conversation. My, my hands are flying all over the place. Nobody can see them but me. And I'm very disappointed in my, my, my hand communication skills. My Italian-American wife is very disappointed. We, we really should make a YouTube channel. <laughs> but that, that, that's another issue. But, uh, yeah, no one can see my, my hands uh, tremoring. So that's, that's always a thing too, right? Fair enough. <laughs> Coming soon to Rolling Bones, ASMR of Dr. Rastin tremor, tremoring his hand, basically. Then, yeah, I, I am the tremorer. Let's never make that a thing. <laughs> we'll leave that well enough alone. Thank you. <laughs> now, the disconnect from other people results in both depression and anxiety, but also uh, a different interaction we have with people. We see people differently, and I think it's it's shown itself in social media interactions where we are much more likely to be suspicious of people not like us, uh, paranoid even of the um, intentions of other people. And that's really driving us to anxiety because think about it. If you are paranoid about the next person, you're going to be anxious about them. You're going to be depressed that maybe they don't have the, your best interest in, in mind. Um, and it's, it's, it's striking how we need to reconnect with people. Now, one way that we can do this, uh, yet another book um, that uh, I recommend to everyone I mentioned earlier in the episode is The Power of Ritual. The power of ritual suggests that for us to reconnect with each other, we need meaningful rituals. What did those look like in the past? Well, culturally speaking, we had all sorts of religious feasts. I mean, really, all the rituals of the great religions had to do with food, right? You get together, you eat, you have fun. You might consider it a sacrifice, but then you get to eat the barbecue when you're done. So um, just to elaborate on that real quick. I'm just saying a Jewish temple must have smelled delicious. It was basically a, right. like, it was a, it was like a God sanctioned barbecue pit. Right. And you know, they had some, I mean, we're talking rack of lamb here where right. they, they couldn't eat the hot dogs. They were, they were going the full on stuff. This was, this was the good stuff. Right. <laughs> but there was and, bonding. There was community. There was celebratory. There was food. There was right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it, you don't need necessarily a religion to come together to bond over rituals. Food is one of the best means for gathering. That, that could be Pollock at home. That could be going to your favorite restaurant with your buddies. We don't do that so much anymore. And I'm not talking about because of COVID. This trend. Pre-COVID, man. This is pre-COVID. This is pre-pandemic. People are not getting together eat and eating. And we know that families that eat at least one meal a day tend to be stronger families. That's actually a tactic a lot of folks run um, when trying to like forge a bond when there's a bit of hostility. It's like if I can get myself into a situation where I'm breaking bread with, I guess, the enemy, it gets really hard to hate the person that you're sharing literal bread with at some point. Right. There, there's a system in our brain. It's really dope. It's actually what we glitch out when we um, expose somebody to THC. Uh, the end. Yeah, that's where we're going today. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, <laughs> you know, brownies and all that, right? Hash brownies. 
Yeah, yeah, there you go. So you can eat and then you can do all that stuff too. But um, <laughs> the, the endocannabinoid system, so check it out. Mm-hmm. Most of the drugs that we run, if not all of them, have to operate somewhere in our body, which implies that there's a receptor somewhere in that body that does the thing on its own. Like, right. it's not like opiates magically just make you feel good. There's a system that makes you feel good that the opiates operate. See how that works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The endocannabinoid system go is an it's a really cool system because it makes you want to eat, but it also makes you really kind of friendly. It bonds you to the people you're eating with. It it really does. You can see that from many people who uh, partake in cannabinoids. <laughs> you can just say weed, man. Let's just say uh, weed. Uh, I, I'm a bit of a stutter at times. Um, when they partake, they're pretty easy going to get people to be around, right? Right. And that's part of how the chemical system runs. That's part of what's enjoyable about it for folks who are into that. You're uh, pharmacologically, or however you want to say it, because I guess it's not pharmacology, but it's but you're using an outside agent to induce a system that you already like because you're built to like the system. So right. the endocannabinoid system going live is intrinsically positively valent. So what does that mean? You like when it goes active. When it's go active, when you share a meal with somebody you remotely are connected to. Um, and, and we can, can do that, but you can also just do it sharing a meal with your damn family. Eat you your family, don't smoke weed. You can share a meal with someone you don't like. And then and you become friends. Generate a positive friendship out of that. Yeah. That's how powerful eating together is. That's actually a thing. So what we need to be doing, we need to be having a national potluck. I'm just saying, let's... Uh, I I'll never forget. I spent a couple of years in Hawaii, and uh, of uh, anything that I learned about the Polynesians is they know how to eat. What you and do is you take a big ass banana leaf, like <laughs> like not a, not not a banana, like a big ass no, banana yeah, leaf, huge banana leaf. Right, you roll that shit out. <laughs> oh, but, and they they know how to eat and and get together to do it. And I think we we've lost that that connection um that also goes along with other rituals rituals could be as as i mentioned religious but it could also be secular it could be a bowling league or a softball league Uh, it could be a book club where you get together and just read a bunch of books that you like or or create a bunch of podcasts you know right let's be real you and i kind of became friends over running the show yeah that's exactly right that's exactly how it did we worked together over a common goal and we connected that way, and it's been great. It's right. been absolutely great. You can tell we se- we seem to get along because the show is still going. <laughs> yeah, we're only on episode twenty one, and it's been two years. Right, it's been right. two years. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> but um, all, all this to say, there's there's a real connection idea to this thing. The community bonding is very important because you spend the good times investing in your community, making those bonds solid. Because at some point, you know that song that old. Uh, what the hell is it called? Um, I ain't gonna sing on this damn show, but the one of the uh, le- um, <laughs> oh, come on, you can do it. I'm trying to remember the, the words, that's the hardest part. Right. Because, uh, we all need somebody to lean on. You just, um, oh, that, that thing, call on me, brother. Yes, that one. Him? What we is that called? Somebody to lean on, right? That's lean on me, lean on Thank me, you. lean on me. That song pretty much summarizes the sum total of what we're talking about here. If you have people to lean on formally, if you have people to lean on, then your depression system, when it goes live, it activates those people 
to do their job to help you out. Yes. So great, you have yeah. people. What happens if you don't have people? You're kind of screwed. You smolder. Basically. You smolder. And you start you start producing smoke and eventually you burst into flames. Right. And that's not to say that right. depression isn't a problem. That makes it an even worse problem than we said it was before because if it's a chemical problem, then good for you that it's a chemical problem because I can give you some Lexapro, call it a day, you move on to your life, let's have some fun. But if this means that you are pathologically isolated, what the hell is the med to fix pathological loneliness? Yeah, it's kind of like trying to put out a bonfire with a little bit of dirt, but you never actually mix the water in at the end. Yeah. So, yeah, you throw some dirt on there and it it may look like it's okay, but underneath it's, it's burning hot and you, the first time the wind blows open, blows it open and then the conflagration just ignites and you, now you're a forest fire. You know, it's, it's... Yeah. The Lexapro is the dirt. Right. And your environment is the fire. Right. And the dirt is useful. Let's not downplay that. Right. But it's insufficient in isolation. It is the crutch that gets you to where you need, but the things you need still have to be there. It's like, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to like hit on, hit on our own thing for a moment. It's like you do all the best OMT in the world, but you don't give somebody a rehab plan. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And then they come back a month later and say, well, I'm not any better. And did you you do your squats? Did you do your sit-ups? Did you do your push-ups? Did you do your yoga? Whatever it is that uh, you have in your program, did you do it? At some point, we found a way to put osteopathic manipulation into this episode. Well, we've got to, because he's still here. (laughs) There's a, there's a fake contract that we're pretending to be obligated to. Right. Well, you know, we, we have our osteopathic tribe. And so uh, we have that obligation, and uh, we're trying to introduce the world to the osteopathic way, the osteopathic tribe, so we might as well throw it in. Right. Um, But let's actually jump off of that real quick. Why the hell are we talking about this in an osteopathic podcast? Remember way back when, when you and I were first building this show, like -hmm. like season one, episode one? Yeah, yeah. So way back when, you and I were trying to like figure out how the hell to convey the idea of osteopathy uh to a public and yo guys there was a, a lot of stuff we had to cut out purely because and not not because it was good or bad just because of duration like yeah yeah one, we had to yeah pare it down once upon a time we tried to keep these shows like 30 45 minutes long we gave up on that clearly yeah yeah well now we just let it go <laughs> oh no no more disney if this happens one more time we need to start asking for like like some sort of sponsorship from like yeah, the big yeah. mouse. Either that, they might want us to license. <laughs> I'm uh, going to have a lot of trouble talking if I can't reference Disney, man. That's like half my life right now. I right? have a kid. Yes, two. you do. <laughs> my kids are all about Disney to this Honestly, day. We just rewatched Moana for, I'm not sure how many times now. Well, now, now that song is in my head. I am Moana. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, what can I say? But you're welcome. Anyway, so what ended up happening was there was this really amazingly rich concept in um, A.T. Still's writings. It was uh, it was this idea of something called biogen. What is biogen? One, it's a word he made up, so I have no idea. But two, it, it was this term he created to, to describe this phenomenon. The idea was that sometimes the problems at the level of like, let's say a cell, right? Like, oh, these cells are bad because they have bad 
they didn't have DNA back then, but something about the architecture at a microscopic level is weird. Maybe you should fix that with nutrition or with rest or fluids or something to that uh, to that direction. Magnetism, hydrotherapy, half half. Yeah, whatever whatever therapy was the flavor of the day. Right. Sometimes the issue is in the level of the anatomy. Hey, you have a broken bone. Perhaps we should splint that. But sometimes maybe the problems at the level of the organization of your anatomy, right? Hey, mm-hmm. you know what? That bone looks good, but it's rotated just a little far to the right and it's pinching off whatever nerve. That's why you feel whatever thing. If we twist that back using like and whales techniques and all that good stuff, all of a sudden your knee feels good. Sometimes it's at the level of habit, right? What if the reason your parts are out of place is because your habits are just a bit aberrant. Your postures are off. You spend 90% of your time in a chair when humans really were not built to sit that long. Maybe I should be teaching you to exercise. What if the problem is now in your deconditioning? What if the problem is in the level of the reason you sit down so much is because you're locked in a job that requires you to sit down because you're only allowed to take two potty breaks per eight-hour shift and you have to submit like a 30-minute written like permission slip thing like you're back in grade school, like you're a call center agent or something. Right. That's pretty damn depressing. But is the pathology like at the level of the person, the cell, the part, the thing that the person's built in? This biogen idea, what I really loved about it was this idea that the person kind of blends into the mass. What happens is you shift your filter clinically from uh, to the level of the problem. So if the problem is at the level of the cell, guess what? You're going to do some cellular stuff. And back then, the best they had was, I guess, magnetism. But now we have some drugs. They're kind of dope. Good for us. If the problem's at the level of a habit, we intervene at the habit. What happens when the problem's at the level of the environment? All of a sudden, from a medical perspective, we need to start paying attention to societal duties and societal norms. And that's kind of destabilizing. And that's, that is a, probably, of all the interventions we have at our, our beck and call, that is probably the most difficult. Because when the environment is an abusive relationship, how do you extricate your patient from an abusive relationship? If the environment's an abusive job or a, a, a terrible job, how do you tell your patient, well, you're going to have to quit not having somewhere else to go, knowing that they have family responsibilities that they have to pay for, whether it be rent or food or both or medical bills, all of those kinds of things. Right. So working as a community, as a medical professional within the community, that that becomes primary. But we don't, unfortunately, have a great infrastructure in this country to do that effectively. Now, we used to once upon a time. Now, the trade-off is we had better infrastructure for this version of healing, of taking care of people, but what we didn't have was funding. So you get one thing, you lose another. Once upon a time, American medicine was intrinsically tied to our um, church systems, uh, not non-denominational. If you're Catholic, good for you. If you're Christian, good for you. As long as you're some version of like worshiping one of the Christian things, right? then there was actually a system in the United States to help with that. That's why most of our Hospitals are still called like Saint Whoever. Um, yeah, Saint Mary Mercy, where I trained in the internship. Right. Um, the idea of medicine was actually linked to the idea of service and healing at the level of its behavior and infrastructure because most of our healing was done in these environments. One, because let's be real, we didn't have any better tools. And two, 
because the explicit purpose of the church system was to serve. This was a form of ministry before it became an industry. Well, and many itinerant ministers were also physicians and, uh, or at least doctors, not yeah. necessarily trained in medical schools, but trained in medical arts. Um, and, you know, they probably couldn't afford to live just on ministering wages. So, you know, you got to do something and doctoring was something you could do. Right. Actually, call that to attention. A.T. Still's dad was a minister physician. Right. <laughs> Which is kind of what got him interested in this whole physician thing in the first place. Boom, full circle. And, you know, we, we have to work on reconnecting people. That's that's the ultimate goal, reconnecting people and their environments and getting them out of negative feedback loops. And then when I say negative feedback loop, I'm not talking about the chemical negative feedback loop where things stop. I'm talking about negative emotions and those kinds of things. I believe the term is haters, sir. Yes, haters. But uh, that's the idea, though. It's um, The community thing matters so much more than we can really give credit to. And we're really dwelling on this idea because how often do you hear a doctor say something along the lines of, yeah, the reason you're depressed is because your community sucks. <laughs> so my prescription to you is get away from that community. <laughs> well, honestly, pra practically what I did, what I've done with a lot of my patients, because Look, I'm from the Northeast. It was, it's a very different environment um, culturally. I moved to Bible Belt, and there's a move I can play here that I couldn't do in the middle of, like, you know, the, the metropolitan area. Are I you take from it, Jersey? Huh? <laughs> Is he from Jersey? <laughs> a little bit. Sorry, uh, Hamilton reference. I got you, I got you. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I'm seeing Hamilton now. <laughs> it's on Disney+. Plus. Now I'm thinking about Olaf. And, Anyway, um, one of the things I, I've done with some of my patients is, because a lot of them do come in with these issues, and after giving them a very sincere conversation as to what's going on, I gave, we basically, I give them a, a five-minute version of what this long-ass episode is. Like, hey, you know what, look, if you're having these symptoms for real, have you ever had a stroke, TBI, nothing, great, good, okay, cool, awesome. And then I try and map it out, like, look, I don't know you that well yet, I just met you, but something in your environment is setting up for this, that depression that you're feeling is a signal that something is off. And honestly, I don't know if that signal is right or wrong. For all I know, it's aberrant, in which case this is why I have these medications. But let's take it for granted that this signal might be telling you something. The way the signal runs is it goes active when your threat systems are going live. It goes active when you're overwhelmed in a way that you are asking other people to help you at a behavioral level. Do you have people? Do you have people to help you? And they're like, what do you mean people? I'm like, all right, check it out. You ever seen The Walking Dead? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, cool. Do you have Walking Dead people? Like, do you have like a Rick Grimes? And they're like, nah. And I'm like, all right, we need to find you a Rick Grimes and <laughs> not a Shane. <laughs> but um, <laughs> they, they seem to understand that. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of them say they don't have people because, like, look, it's a metropolitan area. It's it's a, it's a city or suburban area here, too. Everybody's all scattered. And I tell them, like, look, you have no people. Fine. You have me. You can at least talk to me. But I'm not your friend. I'm your physician. I can only go so far just because of the nature. Like, you pay me to take care of you. And then I tell them, like, look, you don't have to, like, take the, the, the metaphysical, the spiritual stuff aside for a second. You need people. You need community. Are you opposed to walking into a church today? And sometimes, sometimes I get a no, 
But a lot of my patients, after they hear what I just told them, go some version of, you know, it's been a long time since I went to church. And now I'm like, you know what? Try this. Time to go back. Go back. You don't even have to pray. You don't have to pay attention to the, to the ministry. I don't care. Just, I want you to sit in that church during a mass and hang and just be present there for a minute and see what happens. And more often than I would think, that actually worked. And I'm like, holy crap, that actually works. In my head, I'm like, there's no way in hell this is going to do nothing. Yeah. And they come but, back the next time and they're like. Right. Like, I'm no no I'm joke. Sure. One of them straight up joined a ministry and she's like, good to go. And I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> she went from like, I have nothing to now I do X, Y, and Z with these people. I have friends now. Life is good. And now I'm like, in my, a part of me is kind of like, oh man, I did that. But I'm like, no, I didn't do shit. Took me that long to swear for this episode. You just reconnected. Yeah. Well, well you did get one in earlier, but that's all good. Fair enough. But <laughs> she did the work, honestly. You know, you know I mean, it's, yeah. she connected and it's all it took. And that's all it takes. You know, it's, it's amazing how that works. You know, we're, we're coming to the end uh, of uh, this episode. There's a lot more connection talk to happen. We're not going to get through all of this book, but uh, Lost Connections is definitely a book you need to get into. But we're, we're going to go into episode two. We're going to get into uh, some other disconnection. But I'm not going to go into it now, so we're going to leave you hanging. But uh, thanks for joining us, as always, on Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast where we talk about your body, your health, and how to fix it. And uh, we will talk to you later about more connections. Rolling Bones, the osteopathic podcast, is brought to you by Drs. James Aston and Dante Paredes. We'd like to note that medicine is a constantly changing science and art with various approaches from practitioner to practitioner. This podcast represents the Roland Bones doctor's views of osteopathic medicine and OMT and will be as evidence-based as possible. Now, comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors are welcome, but no money from drug or device companies is accepted. By listening to this podcast, you agreed not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including, but not limited to, patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This applies to the hosts, guests, and contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall James Aston, Dante Paredes, or any guests or contributors to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. Please visit us on Twitter at Rollin' Bones Pod, or send us messages at Rollin' Bones Pod at gmail.com. Thank you. <laughs>